You are listening to Take Back the Fight, a podcast that explores modern feminism in Canada and the digital age. I'm your host, Nora Loretto, and this podcast is based on a book that I wrote with the same name. This podcast is brought to you by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Episode 11, Anti-Capitalist, Anti-Racist, and Decolonial Feminism. This episode is the end of the podcast, or almost the end. There's going to be a conclusion after this episode, but this is the episode where I try to learn from the missteps and mistakes and ideas and strategies and theories that I've talked about over the previous 10 episodes. When I was writing this chapter, the truth is that parts of this chapter were all over the book. There were parts in the section about white feminism. There were parts uh, in the section about knowledge. There were parts in the section about feminist opposition to power. And when we sat down and looked at the structure of this book, when it was all finished, it made sense to finish the book on what was the most important point, which is that feminism today has to be anti-capitalist. It has to be anti-racist and it has to be decolonial if it's going to be able to challenge any of the power structures that it needs to challenge to take down the patriarchy. Recently, feminist giant Bell Hooks passed away. Bell Hooks wrote a lot about how to resist the white supremacist heteropatriarchy. In all of the memories shared about her writing or homages paid to her incredible body of work, there was this theme that continued to arise that I paid attention to. Of course, there were a lot of different themes that a lot of people were were, were, were retweeting or, or sharing or whatever. But the, the themes that I was paying attention to was how she talked about this being the way that we could look at our true opposition, that it isn't exactly intersectionality, but that we can name the opposition as being the white supremacist heteropatriarchy and capitalism. And if we don't look at it like this, we will always miss things. We will always be unable to change certain things. We will get confused and think that change can happen from within the inside of a political party. We might get confused and debate uh, our tactics into a position that might be acceptable to our opposition rather than being something that is radical and that will confront our opposition. And there was one talk that that Bell gave uh, six years ago for the New School in New York City that just knocked me to the ground. And I've been thinking about it ever since I saw it. She asked the question, are women today better off in the home than they were before, decades before? Do women have more power? Are relationships healthier And she concluded that probably not, that there still is this incredible self-doubt among many women. Of course, abusive relationships still exist. And is this a failure of feminism, that feminism was not able to contend with this private location, which is really the most basic? Bell's attention to love and and relationships is not exactly something that I've ever thought too much about. I'm I'm not the kind of person to think too much about things like love and belonging. That's just not 
who I am. But when she talked about this, I thought it was so incredible to, to, to think about how right she is and how after a century of feminist activism, there are still really basic problems that plague our personal relationships that feminism not only couldn't defeat, but it also couldn't give tools to talk about how to defeat them either. She also said that today things are so much different where, you know, we're not able to sit together and argue and argue and argue and argue over the way things should be uh, to develop collective approaches to the problems we face. We're far too distracted with other things. And this, the time that we spend together tends to be on these social media platforms where you can't really have these kinds of debates. And so as I think towards a new year, or maybe you're listening to this in the middle of April or the middle of July, <laughs> and there's not necessarily a new year for you to consider, but as I think about going forward in 2022 and beyond, I'm definitely going to be more committed than I ever have been to trying to have these debates and discussions in real life with comrades who are struggling in the same direction that I am against the same forces. This episode is going to explore capitalism, racism, and colonialism, and how feminism has operated within each of those spheres, how it's been contorted by corporate feminism, how feminism is far too often still white feminism, and what we must do to ensure that anti-racism is at the core of feminist action, and really importantly, how do we confront colonization, colonialism, Canada's colonial past and Canada's colonial future as we imagine new kinds of feminist action to grow out of the ashes of this pandemic? First, let's talk about capitalism. Capitalism is literally incompatible with women's liberation. That should be obvious to you. And if it isn't obvious to you yet, um, I guess maybe email me and I can give you some things to read. The shorthand is under capitalism, women's role is confined to the kitchen, to raising children, to unpaid work, to make sure that the male breadwinner can make as much money as possible. And increasingly, under unregulated capitalism, uh, women have had to do all of that, plus also work. There's literally no way to reform a system that has been built on the exploitation of the nuclear family unit, where women's roles are firmly entrenched, to make that into something that's feminist. That's often lost, though, on a lot of mainstream discussions around feminism. Feminism becomes about self-expression, as I've said many, many times, and people writing about feminism for maybe news outlets who aren't necessarily aware of what feminism is or should be or can do have been easily confused in the last number of years over rising attention to women's role in the workplace, especially as it relates to stuff like sexual harassment and assault. All of a sudden, feminism becomes a fight for women to lean in, to lean in as hard as they can. And by leaning in, they will manage to lean right past 
all of the sexism and patriarchy that they experience on the job. Lean In was the title of a book that argued that women just had to apply themselves in different ways if they wanted to be as successful as they dreamed of being. It was published in 2013, and it remixed feminism to be something that you could do on your own through your own sheer will and then climb the corporate ladder. It offered people a version of feminism in corporate speak that could tell women how to be successful and at the same time suggest that if they're not successful, it's probably their own fault. After Sheryl Sandberg did the global PR tour of Lean In, there was a backlash to this idea that all it took was a woman's sheer will to be successful, which is, of course, a completely ridiculous assertion. And so by 2015 or so, just as Me Too was was on the rise, there was also this discussion emerging that targeted Lean In and tried to identify how corporate feminism is not only a waste of time, but it's actually damaging towards the feminist cause. In Take Back the Fight, I write this, quote, Worse than being useless, the individualized empowerment message creates a self-fulfilling prophecy where people become suspicious of the actual work that's required to fight systemic sexism. It has created an extremely difficult terrain to navigate, especially for young women who have been raised to take their place in society wherever they believe that they might be, but who are then confronted by the hard reality that the forces that harm them are far beyond their personal control, unquote. Now, I quote a study in the Harvard Business Review that tried to get at whether or not lean in was actually improving anything for women on the job. And here's what they found, quote, the good news is that lean in is empowering. After reading Sandberg's advice, participants believed women had the ability to overcome obstacles. But there was a big catch. They also blamed women who didn't succeed, even if their troubles were objectively caused by bias. This belief, in turn, made them more skeptical of broader initiatives that might tackle that bias. And so isn't that interesting that this study is looking at the lean in materials? They give the materials to a bunch of study participants and they ask them to respond to them. And so one of the study authors conclude, quote, these findings should worry anyone who believes we need structural and societal change to achieve gender equality in the workplace. And not too surprisingly, obviously, um, Sheryl Sandberg is not the feminist superhero that everybody had been hoping for or that she was trying to um, parlay herself into being. When Sheryl Sandberg and Facebook were implicated in creating the global far right's meme related to George Soros and anti-Semitism, writing for The Guardian, Arwa Madawi argued that, quote, if this sordid story is good for anything, I hope it serves as a reminder that we need to push back against corporate feminism. Capitalism has co-opted feminism and turned it into a way for privileged women to advance their careers and sell books, unquote. And then this is me writing. Indeed, we need to understand patriarchy as one of the foundations on which Canada is built. There's a connection between the fact that women cannot advance in their careers and a lack of childcare or home care support. There's a connection between gender-based violence in home and harassment in the workplace. The system has been created to use power to ensure that women remain subjugated, whether through their salaries or simply needing a support group to get through the daily grind of the corporate world. Without attacking the roots, without being multifaceted, we cannot win. 
if you think about it for like two seconds, it's pretty obvious that feminism is incompatible with with capitalism. And yet neoliberalism has managed to remix feminism in such a way that it has become a matter of self-identity, as I've said many times on this podcast. When that is what feminism is, it no longer becomes a threat to the status quo. And, and crucially, it no longer identifies where power is located. If it doesn't identify where power is located, how is it supposed to confront power? It's impossible. It creates this fake debate that allows for self-empowerment, the kind of mantra that Lean In offered to so many people, but never asked, what are you leaning in past? And how do you attack power within the workplace that subjugates women? It, of course, also flattened the identity of women to being something that was in their hands, that it wasn't going to be a result of their race or their social status or which community they lived in or their disability. It was about how hard they willed themselves to climb the corporate ladder. That's a message that is extremely palatable to those in power already and it's a message that we need to see as feminist activists who understand that power is the location where we need to be orienting our action that anything that tries to confuse us and tell us that that the problem is actually us is ridiculous I hope that you have an internal monologue that is always telling you that you're awesome and that you're doing everything right because you probably are. And none of the problems that we experience under patriarchy can be solved through self-help or can be solved through just leaning in as hard as possible. Corporate feminism is only one aspect of how feminism has been remixed and transformed and co-opted. I think that anti-capitalism is pretty easy to understand. It might be harder to imagine how you put that in practice considering how capitalism has its tentacles all over us. And that might be a subject for another episode. Suffice it to say that feminism requires deep participatory democratic decision making. And not necessarily, I'm not talking about necessarily government, although government has to be radically transformed as well. But whenever we're imagining the way that feminism can confront power that's inherent in capital, we have to think of all the ways in which capital seeks to destroy us, whether that's through household debt or student debt, whether that's through low-waged jobs and low-waged communities trying to survive together, uh, whether that's through all of the attacks of gutting social services and the welfare state. There's just so many ways that capitalism is, is, is waging this full fledged attack on feminists but it's not enough to only look at capitalism because in Canada and in many other countries capitalism works hand in hand with white supremacy as I explored in the third episode of this series white feminism has been one of the most destructive forces and if we're going to advance as feminists we have to identify it and figure out how to work around it or combat it But it isn't just white supremacy and racism. It all goes back to the fact that Canada is a colonial nation. And as a colonial nation, the role of women being subjugated by men is a colonial policy to help populate this colonial project. And so women are both 
dominated, but also then dominate over nations of individuals who lived here for time immemorial. Within feminist movements, if we're not looking at how we can be anti-racist and decolonial, we will simply reproduce racism and colonialism within our structures. And sadly, there's no shortage of examples of that happening. This is where I want to mention something called Daughters of the Vote, which was always an event that made me think of like Daughters of the Orange Order or something like this. (laughs) Daughters of the Empire or Daughters of the Confederate flag or whatever. It always just came across as really weird. But I mean, it's that's not where it's coming from. This is an initiative by an organization called Equal Voice. And Equal Voice is one of these groups that I think really embodies the limits of of feminism when you take out these analyses from the power that feminism actually has. And so Equal Voice advocates for more women in politics. It's multipartisan. And so it, it engages with women politicians from all parties and from all political stripes. And it's fine. I mean, there's a there's a space for that for some people, for sure. In 2019, there was one of these events, the Daughters of the Vote, where one individual per every riding in Canada was selected to come to Ottawa and participate in various political activities. The idea was that the delegates would have the chance to sit in the House of Commons and make statements and feel what it's like to be in power and then, I guess, presumably go on to be conservative or liberal or NDP MPs. This is what I wrote in Take Back the Fight. Quote, it was organized first in 2017 to mark 100 years of women's suffrage and then organized again in 2019. The Daughters of the Vote event in 2019 happened to land in the middle of Justin Trudeau's biggest scandal of his first mandate. For weeks, rumors had been swirling that Trudeau's office exerted unreasonable pressure on former Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada Jody Wilson-Raybould to let the engineering firm SNC-Lavalin out of the hassle of going to trial on corruption charges. On day two of the Daughters of the Vote event, Trudeau expelled Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott from his caucus. It was a move widely seen as heavy-handed at best and racist and misogynistic at worst. When Trudeau addressed the Daughters of the Vote Assembly, many delegates turned their backs to him in protest. Many called him a fake feminist. And it wasn't the first time this happened. At a Young Workers Conference in October 2016, dozens of delegates turned their backs on Trudeau to protest his government's record on labor relations. Unquote. I'll just mention, I was present at that second thing, that labor conference, and it was really amazing to see students stand up, even in the face of um, staff from the Canadian Labor Congress, really pressuring them to not pull a protest on like that. I'll continue from Take Back the Fight. Quote, five daughters of the vote delegates, Sarisha Eiler Singh, Taktu Sabrina Montague, Autumn LaRose Smith, Jalen Jarrett, and Megan Linton, share their experiences with the structure of the event and the harassment and hostility that they experience from other other delegates. They receive messages from fellow delegates who are angry that they had protested conservative leader Andrew Scheer for having recently spoken at the United We Roll rally, organized in large part by vocal white nationalists. Equal Voice said that they had done everything possible to ensure a safe space and that no one should have experienced harassment. Ayer Singh said, quote, this program wasn't set up for people like us, unquote. Spaces that were set up for the delegates to decompress became locations where other delegates confronted them over their protest tactics. I first heard about what was happening while it was happening. Someone reached out to me and asked if I could help get the word out. 
Then there was this really wonderful article written in the National Observer that detailed a lot of the concerns that these five delegates had. I knew one of the delegates, and since I've become pretty good friends with another one, um, and actually we've never talked about this event together, <laughs> but it, it's amazing to see them stand up against some very obvious contradictions inherent in an event like this. Equal Voice is an organization that received $3.8 million from the Status of Women Canada for the event, um, the, the grant explanation said, quote, expanding leadership opportunities for young women in politics. And they had Imperial Oil as one of the sponsors. The event invited Kelly Leach and Linda Frum, who are both extremely terrible individuals. Kelly Leach tried to become the leader of the Conservative Party through explicitly racist comments. And Linda Frum regularly attacks progressive individuals and causes. Uh, notably, she tried to defund Canada's Palestinian solidarity movements. And there's just no way to reconcile the presence of Imperial Oil or a Kelly Leach or a Linda Frum with, with an event that is apparently supposed to encourage women to get into politics if the goal is feminist decision-making. This is where white feminism is so obvious and so caustic and, frankly, so destructive because it has this air of we're just trying to get everybody involved. And then the second that there's individuals who will take a stand for things that are quite basic. I mean, Trudeau was under tremendous criticism for the way that he was dealing with Jody Wilson-Raybould. People called him out for being racist and misogynist in the way that the conversations uh, seemed to be held based on media reports and based on you know reports from Wilson-Raybould herself. And for these delegates to then feel pressure from other delegates or harassment or experience these comments that their that their that their behavior was inappropriate is is quite stunning. Like, first of all, of course, you're in the House of Commons and if you're, you know, playing member of parliament, you have the ability to express yourself. Like that's basic. But secondly, it just shows the problem with feminism that doesn't specifically identify and attack racism and white supremacy and rather invites like racists to present just because they're women and they got into politics. It's hollow. It's powerless. It brings absolutely no weight behind the organizing to actually force politics to change to become more feminist. And even worse, it holds up some of the worst anti-feminists that have held positions of power in Canada as saying, well, they're, they're women and therefore they're your ally. It's really caustic stuff. Sadly, though, it's also the norm. And, and so in these kinds of spaces, and they're mainstream spaces, but also in absence of having alternative, progressive, feminist spaces to organize, the Daughters of the Vote was probably the first time that that many young feminists were able to gather in the same location for a period of time in years. And so if this is the only space or one of the only spaces that you could get to, and you have to be chosen, and you have to live in these specific regions because you have to represent all of the ridings, there's an obvious limit to this. And so calling out these structures, organizing around these structures, and identifying structures that uphold the status quo, uphold the, the way things operate by saying, this is okay, this is fine, this isn't, this isn't a problem. This is, this is the task that feminism has to do 
now. It has to do this now. It has to do this for years to come. And what we need to do is figure out what are the best ways to do this because protest, of course, is important. But protest is mobilization and it's not going to have a lasting impact. At the next Daughter of the Vote event in however many years, how many of those delegates will even know what have happened in 2019? The, the ability we have to share our stories and to strategize is just so limited right now. This kind of white feminism by default is present everywhere. And if we look at one of the highest profile investigations that was done into something that affected women disproportionately, we, we can look at the investigation done in the Globe and Mail called Unfounded. And it was a pretty major investigation. It pieced together data that was very hard to come by, done by Robin Doolittle, and identified that the majority of cases brought to the police about sexual assault were classified as unfounded, as in there wasn't enough evidence to go forward with them, or for some reason, the case was just dropped. There were a lot of interesting revelations that were found and unfounded, and Doolittle crunches the numbers from detachment to detachment of the ones she can get the data for and showed just how much more likely you were to have a case of sexual assault believed and go to uh, be charged and and maybe even prosecuted versus um, depending on where you lived. In some cases, that happened more often. In other places, it happened less often. The investigation happened throughout 2016, and it centered around a young woman named Ava, a white university student. Her case is horrifying and is used as the jumping off point to just show how little police are really doing on gender-based violence. And this is what I write. But what about the women who don't have the resources to challenge police like this? Aside, Ava had sued the London police over how her complaint was handled. During Doolittle's investigation in 2016, an Oneida woman named Deborah Christjohn was murdered by London police officer Nick Doring and Ontario Provincial Police member Mark McKillop. The two officers remained on active duty until they were charged in her death 10 months later. In 2018, of the at least 57 people who died in, quote, police-involved deaths in Canada, three happened in London. Also in 2016, London police arrested a young woman for being drunk and smashing a window. While in police custody, she was shackled and handcuffed, and Sergeant Peter Paquette kicked, taunted, and threatened her. Several officers watched and even stood in the way of the video camera to obscure the view. The police then covered it up through notes that forgot to mention the abuse and instead focused on the woman's refusal to cooperate. The woman, knowing that the incident would have been on camera, hired a lawyer. Together, they got the tape released, and after an intense legal battle, Paquette was eventually charged with assault. The day after Paquette beat this woman, he appeared at a grand opening for a women's shelter in nearby St. Thomas. This does not come up in Unfounded, partly because the data is so bad, but also partly because I suspect that Doolittle wasn't exactly asking these kinds of questions. The report is, quote unquote, colorblind, as in it didn't look at who was more likely to be believed or not believed by the police. It didn't look at whether or not violence reported by Indigenous women was taken more seriously or or less seriously. Instead, this became a general problem and police managed to parlay this into more funding because they argued they just didn't have the resources to be able to take these reports seriously. After the information was published, 
402 cases were reopened, which for the people involved with those cases was very, very good news. But there were also some systemic changes that Unfounded led to. It was cited as the reason for why the federal government committed more than $100 million over five years to its national strategy to prevent gender-based violence. And there was also money promised to go to Status of Women Canada to track statistics. Oddly, that it wasn't promised to Statistics Canada. The money that was promised to police was $2.5 million to the RCMP to improve its, quote, cultural competency training. Nothing was promised to specifically help survivors of gender-based violence. And, you know, here we are three years later, four years later uh, from that report. And obviously, gender-based violence has spiked in Canada related to the pandemic. And as we know, violence against Indigenous women is actually rising, whereas violence against white women has been on a steady decline since the 1960s. I do a deep dive into Unfounded in the book because it was such a groundbreaking investigation. It won tons of awards and it was held up as being an incredible feminist piece of journalism. And it is a great piece of journalism. The data that Robin uncovers is really, really useful and feminist activists should be able to dig in it further and ask the kinds of questions that I raise. But in absence of movements who are prepared to do this in terms of the resources or their presence, it became something that police were able to parlay into a funding boost, which is quite perverse when you think of the fact that an Indigenous woman died at the hands of the police force. And Deborah Christian was not mentioned in Unfounded. She, she just didn't register at all. And so where does that leave us? Well, Canada is 20 months into a pandemic, and there's no real signs that it will let up anytime soon, though we know, of course, at some point it will be over. But the pandemic has left in its wake this incredible wave of violence and destruction against disabled people, racialized people, and women. Nothing that Justin Trudeau had promised was deeply feminist. And in fact, some of his biggest programs were deeply unfeminist, like the CERB that required someone make more than $5,000 the year before the pandemic started to be able to be eligible. Anybody in an abusive relationship where their partner controlled their finances and who may not have been allowed to work would not have been able to access that kind of money to maybe make their escape rather than being locked down with their abuser. As the Canadian Femicide Observatory releases its data every year about the number of femicides in Canada, we can see that the, that the pandemic has had a deadly impact on the country's women. There's, there's really no question about that. And there's been serious economic impacts. Disabled people have been left with nothing or almost nothing. And it's anyone's guess what shape we'll all be in when we're finally out of this. But unfortunately, the dominant message coming from feminists who have access to a platform tends to focus on the economics of it all or on childcare. The economics tends to privilege women who have jobs or women who may have just lost their jobs and are trying to enter the job market or maybe talking about wages. And this is all important. It's, it's necessary that we talk about women's place in the workplace and it's necessary that we talk about wages and workplace conditions. But it's also kind of missing the forest for the trees as there's a real crisis among Canada's poor women There's a crisis among disabled women. 
And we are or we should be well aware of the violence, the continued violence against black and indigenous women in this country. We can't rely on politicians to take this seriously because politicians are the patriarchy. If you missed the episode before this one, I strongly suggest you check that out. And so if we're thinking about how to build a feminist movement that can take on power, then it has to be expressly anti-capitalist, anti-racist, and decolonial. It cannot put the blinkers on and ignore things like colonization, violence against Indigenous women, violence against Indigenous children, anti-Black violence, and anti-Black racism. It cannot ignore disabled people. It cannot ignore queer phobia. And it can't ignore non-binary people and the struggle of trans women and trans men. And so I guess the million-dollar question is, how do we do that? What does that look like? What are we going to build together? Or what is being built that I haven't mentioned that you think I need to be aware of? Over the course of writing Take Back the Fight, I had endless discussions and debates with Fazila, the editor, about all of the amazing ways in which feminist action is happening today, but that the action is so often decentralized or localized that to build connections beyond the community that those activists are serving seems really difficult. And so I would consistently be writing about how there's no feminist movement, there's no feminist movement, knowing that, of course, there is feminism and there are movements. And so trying to reconcile that line with the reality that there are interesting and exciting things happening was really, really important, because in no way did I want to erase some of the things that are happening. In no way did I want to erase any of the work that's happening. But when you zoom out to the provincial level or the national level, when you consider that a a federal structure requires some sort of federal response, so a response that can hold all governments to account rather than, than one and allow the other governments to just pass the buck back and forth, then you can see where that lack of centrally coordinated or networked or group of feminists oriented towards feminist action at those larger levels networked together from from coast to coast or from region to region that's that's really what i'm thinking when i'm saying that we we've lost that but to talk about the decentralized kinds of feminism the the wonderful actions that people are taking or how feminism is woven throughout so many emerging movements that's really critical I'll go through this in the conclusion, the final episode, which is next, but there will be time between this episode and that. And so please be in touch with me if you want me to highlight something that is happening that you're very proud of and that you think holds potential. Because at the end of the day, what I'm doing right now is kind of theoretical. It's the hard work on the ground that you, your friends and your comrades, your family members, your community members will build to be able to actually restore power to our movements and I hope that these episodes have given you stuff to think about I hope you've learned some things I've certainly learned some things doing all the research for this for this podcast and for my book and so you'll have to tune in for the final episode the conclusion for some of those thoughts of what we can then do with this information to translate into something that looks like action my heart
That's it for this episode. Take Back the Fight, the podcast, is written, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Nora Loretto. The music is by me as well, except for this, which is Garam Chai by General Khan. If you like what you hear, make sure that you're sharing this with everybody you know. And hey, listen to it five times. Why not? <laughs> this podcast is funded by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Podcast Network. Check out all of Harbinger's left-wing podcasts at www.harbingerpodcastnetwork.com. I